previously on Beta. Lots of crazy distractions in the news right now, but don't forget how sad I am. Oh, you guys are gonna need Cheesy Crust on the third. Good question, I'll gauge the room. Hey guys, do we want Cheesy Crust on the third? Okay, yeesh, that is a resounding yes. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. Who cares if there's a few little details you'd rather not remember? Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Today, comedy journalist, author, and filmmaker Julie Sebaugh joins us to talk about her documentary, Too Soon, Comedy After 9-11. It wasn't so much you can't make jokes about anything. It was the idea that you can't tell people what they can and cannot laugh at. Also, one of the UK's finest film critics, Ian Nathan, explores the films of the singular director, Christopher Nolan. So fundamentally, I would say Nolan-esque applies to this incredible journey with the concept of time. But first... Rich Hall. Rich is a multi-award-winning comedian, author, and musician. He wrote for David Letterman and was a frequent guest on the show. Rich was also a cast member and writer for Saturday Night Live, Fridays, and not necessarily the news. In the late 90s, he created a character named Otis Lee Crenshaw, a redneck jailbird from Tennessee. For his performance as Otis, Rich received a prestigious Perrier Award at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 2000. He continues to perform stand-up and his own brand of musical comedy. Rich recently released a memoir called Nailing It, Tales from the Comedy Frontier. The book explores real-life experiences in which Rich really had to nail it. And spoiler alert, he nailed it every single time. The journalist and novelist Carl Hyacin says that it's rare for somebody to be as funny on paper as they are on stage, and I totally agree. So what is Rich's secret to getting the laughs onto the page? When you're a stand-up comedian and you have an audience who immediately tells you if something works or doesn't, that's a pretty good bellwether for your comedy working. But when you're writing, you really have to fall back on what made you want to be a comedian in the first place was, uh, I think I'm funny. Mm-hmm. And you're right to think you're funny. You're very funny. You started your career as a journalist for the Knoxville News Sentinel. How did that gig turn into a lifelong career in comedy? <laughs> because I didn't want to work for the Knoxville News Sentinel anymore. <laughs> I was writing obituaries at midnight in a big empty building with nothing but uh, an old uh, typesetting room over my head. This is after studying journalism at Western Carolina University. This is after editing a newspaper. And the next thing I know, I'm just writing up dead people that I don't even know. And that just did not last long. Uh, it was a weird turn of events that made me look out the window one day and see a campus preacher named Jeb Smock, who weirdly only passed away a couple months ago and was still up to his dying day going around to campuses and evangelizing. After you saw him, you, you returned to the, the university library and you kept thinking about what you had just witnessed. And, and you say that there was this comedic idea that occurred to you as a result of seeing, of watching Jeb evangelizing. Can you tell us about that? The idea was um, he would get the crowd together and really antagonize them. That, of course, drew more people. Pretty soon he'd have 200, 250 people. Some of them were heckling him. 
he was better than any comedian I've ever met at dealing with hecklers because that's what he did. He knew how to out-Bible anybody in the audience. It just occurred to me, not thinking as a comedian because I wasn't a comedian, wouldn't it be funny if you got a crowd like this together and after about 10 minutes, you suddenly just pulled the rug out from under him and did something to reveal that it was all a, a joke. It was a send-up of this guy, Jeb Smock. Mm -hmm. And that's what I decided to do. I had no real inkling that this would turn into a comedy career. It just seemed to me... I could go out there and after 10 minutes, suddenly I'm pulling out this giant album that says, it's God's greatest hits. That's why God <laughs> is everywhere. Yeah. And then I started baptizing dogs. I'd get dogs out of the crowd. And it was one of those um, things comedically when you, you know that you have a payoff and now mm -hmm. all you have to do is, is sort of reverse engineer it up to that point. And the payoff was I could exercise a dog, uh, exor, not exert. If you poured a pitcher of water over their head, and then say, denounce Satan, what are they going to do? They're going to shake like crazy. And it, it, <laughs> it worked every time. It was great. So how did you feel about your decision to pursue a comedy career once you started doing stand-up? I just felt like, well, this is what I should be doing. And I also happened to start at a time when comedy was uh, really starting to become a viable career choice. Suddenly. There were comedians all over TV, and I just thought, oh, that's what I want to do. I think after learning how to uh, be a street performer, I thought the obvious next step is to get indoors. <laughs> yeah, sure. With a, with a ready-made crowd. So by the time I reached the clubs in New York, it was astounding to me that there was a crowd already there. I didn't have to build it from scratch as a street performer. I want to ask you about your showcase for David Letterman. It was at the Improv, and you had some high-profile company. In fact, you went on after Larry David. How, how did your set go over? That set, that particular night, went over great because everybody was coming out. This was a showcase for the Letterman show when it, it was coming to New York, and they were looking for writers primarily. So all of us thought, oh, that, what a great gig that would be. So Seinfeld was there, Larry Miller, Paul Reiser. On this particular uh, showcase for Letterman, everybody came out and did their tightest material, and they were great. So I did something different. Uh, instead of doing my tight uh, eight-minute you know, showcase routine, I came out and, and badgered the audience into paying for a pizza. I was playing a Vietnam veteran who was a little uh, unhinged, but he was a pizza delivery man now. And I decided I'm just going to walk through the audience and worked my way to the back where I knew Letterman and his staff and writers and producer was and uh, just kind of harangued Letterman into paying for pizza. It was crazy, but it worked. It really worked. So they hired me as a writer the next day. I went from uh, going on to these late night gigs at the Improv and Catch a Rising Star in New York to walking into Rockefeller Center to my own desk overnight. When I was in New Hampshire this summer, I was driving through New England and... Uh... I decided New Hampshire must have the world's greatest slogan on their license plate. You know what it says? Anybody? Live free or die. It's a pretty gung-ho attitude for a state to take, isn't it? Live free or die. You know, then you stop to think about the poor guy in prison who has to make these plates. You know? Boy. A sick joke on behalf of the state of New Hampshire, I think, you know? What was it like writing? Well, like, how did you feel about writing for, for Letterman's morning show? Well, I felt like the reason I was hired was because we had shared sensibilities, uh, mm -hmm. Letterman and I. And basically, anything you wrote for him, he made it better. I, I felt like almost right away, uh, we were on the same wavelength. 
I just kind of knew how to write stuff for Letterman. It didn't always work, but he would give it his best, you know. Yeah, very well said, yeah. Let, let's talk for a minute about Sniglets, which you invented. What, what is the origin story behind Sniglets? I was working on a show called Not Necessarily the News, and I wrote a sketch about a guy who gets called into the, uh, the boss calls him the dictionary editor. They're getting ready to put out the new annual dictionary, and uh, he's gone through it and seen these words. Presumably, the editor has read the entire dictionary, and he's seen these words. <laughs> he's seen these one word. Uh, w- wait, what is this? What is this? Cheetle. And the, the guy goes, uh, yeah, it's the residue on Cheetos after you, you know, collects on your fingers after you've eaten them. And <laughs> that's not in the dictionary. And went, yeah, it is now. So the whole thing was a sketch. Uh, the mm. producers looked at it and went, you know, you should just get rid of the whole sketch setup and you just come out and introduce these words. And I said, oh, right. And I, you know, I just named them Sniglets. I have no idea why. It just seemed like a good word. That's how it took off. And they, they became sort of a, a regular segment feature on the show. It's one of my jobs is to make up words for things that should be in the dictionary but aren't Sniglets. These are known as, uh, Sniglet is any word that somehow got passed over by the dictionary. I don't know why. Like L acceleration. The mistaken notion, the more you press an elevator button, the faster it'll arrive. <laughs> Mott spur. The Mott spur is that fourth wheel in the shopping cart that never gets along with the other three. And they very quickly translated to books. Where they didn't work was on stage in a club. They didn't work that well. I'm just explaining Mm. them. For a while, that was, uh, it wasn't a massive annoyance, but it was pretty annoying to go on stage and and feel like I was letting people down. Because I go, I don't do sniglets, and you could hear this collective. Mm. Oh, but we paid... You invented a character named Otis Lee Crenshaw. Can you tell us about Otis? That was my entree into musical comedy. Uh, I'm not a great musician. I'm way better than (laughs) I used to be, but uh, I could play piano at the time. But I thought, uh, I know I can write funny songs, original songs, but I need a vehicle to deliver them. And I came up with a character who doesn't understand why nobody is recording his songs, but he's been in prison most of his life. And a good number of songs are about being in prison. He was very easy to channel because he was so many of my marginal relatives that I grew up with in the South, the ones, you know, coming out of the the woods in North Carolina and Kentucky. It was a character I knew inside and out from the moment I created him. We go out walking. Just us two. Much in this world I wouldn't do for you and if a man with a knife said your money or your life I wouldn't think twice and I'd stand my ground and not give an inch coiled like a spring I wouldn't even flinch I would stare into the eyes of that son of a bitch and this is what I'd say do anything you want to the girl just don't hurt me Yeah, and I want to ask you about that. You write in your book about this time when you were touring Australia in 2009, I believe. You end up writing a song that you, as Otis, and your band performed at a funeral for a man you'd never met. How did this happen? <laughs> Some people came backstage, just kind of barged in, and uh, started saying, uh, oh, you're my granddad's favorite comedian. He loved you. And, uh, huh? and then they said, oh, he, he just recently died. He reversed his car off a... Of, supermarket parking lot in uh, 
Adelaide, and you got to come to his funeral. These people think this is a real character. He had a goatee, fake goatee, fake tats, Confederate bandana. But these people actually thought that he was real. <laughs> so I went to a funeral <laughs> as a character. Then somehow ended up in a situation where they asked me to write a song, a eulogy. And um, everybody was hammered on this rut got rum called Bundaberg, which is like jet fuel and alcohol. And um, so I wrote a song about Bundaberg rum. They used to think they'd make the drink that would turn the whole world upside down. One sip and the whole world would come for one sip of Bundaberg rum. I mean, the grandfather was in the casket. They put a can in his hand. You know, <laughs> that's how much of that stuff was going around. I ended up writing a song about that, sort of like a tribute to Bundaberg rum that these people loved, but was really uh, pretty, a pretty vicious takedown of, of the kind of people who drink Bundaberg rum. But they loved it. Hmm. And it became slightly anthemic. And that's when I knew it was time to get rid of Otis. That I'd taken this too far. So can you tell me just a little bit about like the musical comedy that you do as yourself, as Rich Hall? Yes, it's very uh, country oriented. Oh my God, it's a gore spire. They say that the devil fans a flame. Oh my God, it's a gore spire. My great granddaddy was to play. Run away, run away. Dig refuge in the USA. Well, they moved to West Virginia, they bought themselves a trailer, never talked about it in the day. To me, it's always been like, if you listen, if you weren't listening to the songs, lyrics, you would go, oh, this is, this is a pretty good country song. Then when you hear the lyrics, you suddenly realize, oh, this is a comedy song, mm. you know? Yeah. That's my approach now. Since you have such a wonderful way with writing, I'm curious, have you ever thought about writing short stories or a novel or maybe both? I did write a book of short stories called um, Magnificent Bastards about 12 years ago. And uh, before that, a, a book of essays called Things Snowball. Nailing it is different in the sense that it's biographical. It's all about me. Yes. <laughs> and, and not the gigs that define my career, but the ones that led to weird, weird situations. Now that you've looked back on your comedy career and nailing it, what are you most proud of? I'm always most proud of the last thing that I did. I don't really think back about, uh, well, what's been your most crowning achievement? I'm very proud of this book. That was a great lockdown achievement. I think I made the most out of lockdown that people look back and go, what did you do during the lockdown? I go, well, I, I wrote a book and it wasn't a cookbook, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or a self-help book. It was a, a solid book. Rich Hall, thank you very much for joining us. Congratulations on nailing it. Tales from the Comedy Frontier. You nailed it. Well, thank you so much. Rich Hall is the author of Nailing It, Tales from the Comedy Frontier. You can find out more about Rich and his comedy at wpr.org slash beta. Every single little piece of the paper, every story, every opinion piece, every chart, Graph was all about reacting to 9-11 with a mix of you know, horror, sadness. Coming up, filmmaker Julie Sebaugh joins us to talk about her documentary, Too Soon. 
Comedy After 9-11. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Julie Seabaugh has accomplished a lot in her 19 years as an award-winning comedy journalist. She's interviewed many great comedians, including Jon Stewart, Wanda Sykes, and the legendary George Carlin. She hosted and produced Hope on Top, a Mitch Hedberg oral history for Sirius XM's Comedy Central channel. Julie is also a filmmaker. She has directed the feature documentary called Too Soon, Comedy After 9-11 for Vice TV. In it, Julie explores the immediate aftermath of one of the nation's darkest times and how we approached laughing again. She joined us from her home in Los Angeles to talk about this powerful film. The idea actually uh, came from my filmmaking partner, Nick Scown. He's more the filmmaker side of the equation of us working together, where I covered more the journalistic and comedy world side of things. But he had been scheduled to visit film schools in New York in late September of that year. So, you know, when the events of 9-11 happened and he spoke to his friends who lived there and he's like, should I come out? Should I? Uh, and he ended up going out and, you know, remembers taking photos of the aftermath and going home again with a feeling of overwhelming tragedy. And he got home and the Onions 9-11 issue was waiting on his doorstep. And he said it was the first time he laughed again. And I was again, you know, at the University of Missouri at that time. And I was uh, having the Onion print issues delivered to my home. And I remember that same issue too. And I carried it with me as I moved across the country for years. And that was kind of the first thing we bonded on, you know, remembering what it felt like to laugh again was something that bonded us on this project, but it was a universal thing. Mm. That's what the movie's about. How can you laugh again in the face of tragedy? Yeah, exactly. After 9-11, the comedy clubs shut down and there was talk about whether comedy was dead. How did you cover this part of the story in your doc? I had moved to New York after graduating in uh, January of 2003. And I spent quite a few formative years hanging out in those New York comedy clubs. You know, it's starting out as a burgeoning journalist and getting to know the comedians and the scene and how clubs ran and, you know, learning the business. So by the time these, uh, it would have been 15 years, you know, after that point in my life, when Nick came to me with the idea for the film, I had forged all these connections. So it was really easy to understand which comics uh, to talk to about that time. It was a really weird and difficult time. And I thought, how difficult is it going to be for comedy to revive after this? I didn't know how anybody could be funny again. It was kind of like that song, The Day the Music Died. It felt like the day that comedy died. David Letterman was the first late night talk show host to return to the airwaves. And this was less than a week after the attack. How significant was his return to TV? Everybody watched. You're watching and you're confused and, and, and depressed and, and irritated and, and angry and full of grief. And you don't know how to behave and you're not sure what to do. And you don't really, because we've never been through this before. 
to see him human. They didn't know how to take it. It was a stupid pet trick guy. We're gonna, we're gonna try and feel our way through this and uh, uh, we'll just see how it goes. And it's telling that it was a late night comedy show. And it was also telling that, you know, Dan Rather was the first guest, uh, which was kind of recreating the events in a journalistic, somber, respectful way. And then they brought in comedy with Regis Philbin at the end of the show. And I don't mean to be uh, silly about this, but you experienced Pearl Harbor, I think, right? Well, I wasn't there. <laughs> I wasn't you, there. You, were on, you were on the air then, too, weren't you? No, there? I wasn't on the air. <laughs> I'm sorry, I thought maybe... And so just watching the process of Dave, you know, who was the elder spokesman of late night television at that time, go from his speech about, I just don't know, we don't, we've never experienced anything like this before, and we're just going to try to move on and, and do what we can and get things back to normal, which means by the end of it, there's laughter to be had. So him kind of giving this signal to everyone that's like, okay, we can have some other emotions again. We can try to start processing and get things back to normal. And when you're able to laugh, that's sort of a sign that things are getting there. Mm -hmm. Very well said. On September 27th, 2001, America's finest news source, The Onion, published an issue entirely devoted to the September 11th attacks. What kind of impact did that issue have? When they decided to return to work after 9-11 with an issue that was all about 9-11, with amazing headlines like God angrily clarifies do not kill rule, or real life turns into bad Jerry Bruckheimer film, hijackers surprised to find themselves in hell. <laughs> uh, <you know laughs> yeah. Every story, every opinion piece, every chart and graph was all about reacting to 9-11 with a mix of you know, horror, sadness. It just seemed crazy that we would talk about anything but this horrible tragedy that was happening all around us that was on everyone's mind. Like, how would you avoid it? It was almost unbelievable to us that we were doing it, but we, we had decided that we were gonna do the entire issue about what had happened. We were very, very worried that people would misunderstand what we'd written, that people would think that we were mocking it or acting uh, above it. And that was the last thought on any of our minds. We chose the jokes very carefully and we, we, we discussed everything and it was like one of the most intense Onion writers' room meetings that there ever was. It was just this personal sign of we're all dealing with this. This is how we're going to do it. A little bit of laughing, a little bit of crying, but we're not going to ignore it. Three weeks after 9-11, Comedy Central presented the New York Friars Club roast of Hugh Hefner, and the late, great Gilbert Gottfried made quite an impression at this roast. What, ha what happened? <laughs> I love how it's introduced in the film because it was the same night that Saturday Night Live came back to the air. And whereas SNL was kind of more somber and they had, you know, the, the first responders and Rudolph Giuliani at the beginning and everything was kind of muted. Five blocks away was Gilbert Godfrey getting up and saying, I have to catch a flight to California. I can't get a direct flight. They said they have to stop at the Empire State Building first. 
And the crowd revolts and, you know, someone shouts out too soon, which, you know, as Gilbert has said in our film and several others, which, which I thought meant I didn't take a long enough time before the setup and the punchline. So everyone points to that being the moment of, oh, yeah, we can cross a line. It can be too soon. This is when you learn, like, if you don't test the line, then you don't know where it is necessarily. So Gilbert was the one who kind of sacrificed himself uh, for, for the rest of stand-up comedy. Mm -hmm. But he did manage to win back the audience, didn't he? Yes, and this is where uh, the absolutely fantastic 2005 documentary, The Aristocrats, <laughs> was, was forged, uh, which Paul Provenza and Penn Gillette made. It was basically uh, Gilbert got the crowd back by uh, telling an old kind of comedy industry uh, classic joke that uh, really makes no sense, but it's gross and it's kind of what you determine to do along the way that sort of gives a sense of your style as a comedian. It's a it's, it's sort of a comedy jazz sort of exercise. So Gilbert gave the you know industry crowd a taste of that <laughs> as sort of a uh, penance, get them back. I'm still one of you. Come on, guys, sort of thing. And uh, and he uh, he did it, and and the show continued. Uh, but it was certainly one of the most memorable moments in all of the Comedy Central Rose history. Mm -hmm. There's a very interesting section in your doc about Janine Garofalo. Can you tell us about it and why you thought it was important to include it in your film? Yeah, so Janine was basically a star, you know, at that time in the comedy and film worlds. And whenever uh, the United States decided to invade Iraq, she was among the voices who picketed against that and went on several news shows and voiced her opinions that it was something we shouldn't be doing. Uh, and as a result, uh, this is kind of one of the first times we really started seeing what, uh, I guess, what would be called a cancel culture uh, before terms like this existed. You know, uh, Bill, Bill Maher's show was also canceled at that point when he said something that was deemed inappropriate. But basically the right-wing uh, TV news shows and radio shows. I just kind of went after her and vilified her for that. And there was a lot of uh, flack about her just being a woman in general. Uh, there was another part in the film where we covered Air America, uh, but it had to get cut out for time. And she was also, you know, a newscaster on... Air America, along with Rachel Maddow, Mark Marin, uh, you know, this was uh, Liz Winstead, uh, you know, this was the uh, early 2003 and four in New York City. That was a little bit of context that had to get cut out for time. And and she, uh, she you know, like Scott Thompson, basically has felt that her career has not recovered since. You mentioned Liz Winstead, who, of course, is the creator of The Daily Show. What role did Liz and, and John Stewart and the rest of the, the people on The Daily Show, what role did they play in comedy after 9-11? The history of The Daily Show was that it was created as more of a entertainment spoof. And after 9-11, and especially with the invasion of Iraq, 
there were mainstream news outlets that were maybe not digging as deep into the reasons for the invasion as they perhaps should have. And The Daily Show actually became The Daily Show, as we later knew it, at this point where it started making fun of you know news media itself. Rory Albanese, who uh, was producing at the time, and he spoke about how Jon Stewart created uh, the montage of hypocrisy, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, where you compare one film of a uh, you know politician, et cetera, saying one thing, and then in the next frame, they're saying something completely opposite. <laughs> I want to ask you about the Axis of Evil, the comedy tour, which occurred in 2005. It featured four Middle Eastern comedians. Can you tell us about them? Yeah, it was, um, they had actually evolved from a group founded out of the comedy store by owner Mitzi Shore called the Arabian Nights. So this group had already been formed and it just kind of evolved uh, into the Axis of Evil after 9-11 occurred, uh, which took the term you know, that Bush Jr. had given to the terrorist world that we were against now. And they kind of turned it again, turned a lot of stereotypes and hatred and racism into comedy about their experiences. It's great to see so many Middle Eastern people coming together in one place voluntarily. And tried to really show themselves as we're normal people too. Like, don't believe everything you see on the news because, again, the news media was showing you know, one side of things about how all Middle Easterners are violent and deadly and want death to America. And they were showing that that's not true. And we can laugh just like anyone else. And when you laugh, you know, that's where the human connection lies. Mm-hmm. How successful were they in convincing people that they're just like everyone else? I would say the answer to that lies in sort of their lasting legacy. We showed in the film how there had really not been many Middle Eastern comedians before that time. And in general, comedy was kind of a white man's game. And we were able to show how they actually sort of opened the doors to more diverse talents who saw them achieving, you know, their own special on Comedy Central, their, you know, a world tour that sold out in five countries. Uh, you know, as it was said in the film, if they can do it, we can do it too. So we're, we're seeing that today where comedy is hugely just more diverse than ever. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what did you learn about yourself and uh, 9-11 and comedy from making this documentary? There's the obvious, you know, broken records saying of... We have the uh, tragedy plus time equals comedy. We sort of threw in comedy plus time plus tragedy equals healing. And, you know, obviously what that means is, uh, as, a, as I've said, if you can laugh in the face of tragedy, it's, you know, part of the steps on the road to healing. But something I also personally learned as someone who's been in the industry for now 19 years, it wasn't so much you can't make jokes about anything. It was the idea that you can't tell people what they can and cannot laugh at. You know, it's just different things appeal to different people. But the art form as a whole, 
I find to be uniting. And when you're like sitting in that room in the back and I see like all these diverse people from all backgrounds and politics and religion and they're all like laughing at the same thing in the same moments like okay there's there's a little hope for humanity there yeah very very well said julie seaboth thank you very much for joining us congratulations on too soon comedy after 9 11 it's a very powerful and very thought-provoking documentary oh thank you so much i'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it Julie Seabaugh is the director and executive producer of the documentary Too Soon, Comedy After 9-11. Find out more at wpr.org slash beta. What happens if you put the Joker, the concept of the Joker, into a real-world environment? What would he be? How would he function? Coming up, film writer Ian Nathan joins us to talk about one of the most imaginative and innovative directors working today, Christopher Nolan. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. One of the UK's finest film writers joins us today, Ian Nathan. Ian has been on Beta twice before to talk about Ridley Scott and Guillermo del Toro. Today, Ian joins us to discuss his latest book, Christopher Nolan, the iconic filmmaker and his work. In the introduction, Ian says, quote, Nolan has defied the laws of Hollywood by creating startling original genre pieces that have reveled in their own complexity, unquote. I think Ian is bang on. Nolan's filmography is very impressive. It includes his flag-planting breakthrough, Memento, the brooding Dark Knight trilogy, and time-bending blockbusters like Inception and Interstellar. In his book, Ian explores the origin stories of Nolan's movies and decodes what makes them so successful. He joined us from London to talk about Nolan's works and what makes a film Nolan-esque. I think you can, you can you see a very distinct style in Christopher Nolan's work that if you went in not knowing what the film or who'd made the film was, you'd pick up very quickly. One thing is he has a certain sort of austere, almost film noir style in terms of he likes urban environments, he likes men in suits, he likes not just bat suits, he likes some grey suits, he likes a kind of um, quite sort of a sophisticated backdrop and a kind of a very realistic one. Even films like Dunkirk and The Prestige, which don't necessarily fit into the urban environments, are realistic in their own worlds. But more than that, I think the distinct uh, thing that makes a Nolan-esque film is playing around with time. Like he's fascinated with uh, the structure of films in terms of their linearity and breaking the rules of that. Obviously, you think of something like Dunkirk, where it plays three different plot lines and intersects them, but they're all actually moving at different times. So it's, it's quite a confounding idea. You look at something like Inception and you're moving between layers of plot, each with their own time. You think of Memento, which is a film that literally moves backwards in time. The chronology of the film goes backwards. And you think of Tenet, which I think blew people's minds quite a lot. But that actually is all about the future intersecting with the past and scenes going forward and scenes literally playing played backwards. So fundamentally, I would say Nolan-esque 
applies to this incredible journey with the concept of time. Yeah, definitely. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. Nolan's breakthrough film is Memento. Can you tell us about the origin story of Memento? Yes, this begins with, with Jonathan Nolan, known as Jonah. He was a psychology major, Jonah. And he had this, it's all about this idea of short-term memory loss, the, the, the actual you know, medical version of short-term memory loss, that these kind of these people that can remember longer-term memories, but can't remember, you know, literally forget things after 10 minutes. And the idea of a murder plot told through that character who can't hold on to information, almost defeating the idea of, of a plot, fascinated Christopher Nolan. He was absolutely kind of, you know, how do you make that work? Because that sort of cuts right to the heart of filming and plotting and, and storytelling. If your lead character can't remember anything, how can he trust anyone? He has to rely on what they tell him. I've told you this before, haven't I? Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to mess with you, but it's so weird. You don't remember me at all. No. We've talked a bunch of times. I'm sure we have, yeah. Well, what's the last thing you remember? My wife. Well, what's it like? It's like waking. It's like you just woke up. That must suck. It's all backwards, I mean. And he hits upon the, the inspired notion of, if I tell the story backwards, so the, the, the beginning of the next scene actually is the scene before the scene you've just watched, then the audience has the same effect. The audience lose their memory. They can't tell what's going on because the scene they've just seen doesn't relate chronolo chronologically to the scene you're now watching. A brilliant idea, a controversial idea, because it sort of breaks the rules of narrative. It's like an outside puppet master manipulating the way the story is told. You know, it's not time travel. It's a it's a structural thing, but extraordinary. And it, it absolutely sort of sent the kind of the indie scene wild. And, you know, Memento became a huge hit on that scene. And it was the film that really pushed Christopher Nolan into the mainstream. Mm -hmm. And with the DVD, one of the extras is watching the story backwards, which would be forward. Yes, absolutely. Right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Nolan has made three films about Batman, collectively known as the Dark Knight trilogy. What is it about Batman that intrigues him so much? I don't think he set out to be a comic book director in any way. I mean, he knew the characters and he knew the world that Batman sort of presented. But it came along as an offer. And I think what he liked about particularly the Batman world is, first of all, he's not a superhero in the sense of he has superpowers. He has a kind of fantasy element. So what that presented to someone like Nolan, who loves realism, is that you can put him in a real context. And that you know, opened up the world to him. So he could turn a comic book character, Batman, and all the villains that associated with him, the Joker, Ra's al Ghul, Bane, you know, all these characters, you know, Catwoman, but you could turn them into a sort of film noir style characters and he could make it very dark. He could in, sort of interpret real world things with it and, and make those political and do all sorts of dramatic elements with it. But I think for Nolan, it was sort of a, like, he, like with most things, he wanted to sort of invert the logic of you know, the standard approach to comic book films. He wanted to make them less fantasy, less huge, although his films are huge, but, but more realistic. He said, right, what happens if you put the Joker, the concept of the Joker, into a real-world environment? What would he be? How would he function? 
And I thought that's really daring when you think about it. Because it's all part of the plan. But when I say that one little old mare will die, well, then everyone loses their minds. Introduce a little anarchy. Upset the established order, and everything becomes chaos. I'm an agent of chaos. Oh, and you know the thing about chaos? It's fair. What was it about Heath Ledger that made Nolan decide to cast him as the Joker? I think it was, um, in the end, it was, he had an idea. He's actually actually read for Batman Begins had come in and it hadn't gotten Hmm. on very well with Nolan at that point. And he'd been rather dismissive of superhero films. But obviously something lingered in in Nolan's mind about Heath Ledger. And I think he went back to Heath Ledger and they talked about this concept of the character as being chaotic and unpredictable and having a, a kind of very distinctive state of mind and delivery within the film. And I think from then it was just how well Heath Ledger took that on board and went with the character. But he gives it a kind of sniggering kind of humour and it's, it's incredibly charismatic. But I know the truth. There's no going back. You've changed things forever. And why do you want to kill me? <laughs> I want to kill you? What would I do without you? Go back to ripping off mob dealers? No, 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 you, you complete me. You're garbage, you kills for money. Don't talk like one of them, you're not. Even if you'd like to be. And we none of us have seen it coming. Heath Ledger was a very good actor, but quite a minimalist actor before that, quite restrained. And suddenly to see him completely throw you know, all that to the wind and act with such abandon is, is quite thrilling. Yeah, definitely really is, yeah. Uh, ironically, after the raging success of The Dark Knight, Nolan almost blocked his own way to his next film, Inception. You described Inception as an allegory about filmmaking. How so? Yeah, I think this is true of all his films in the sense that the one thing that for filmmakers that is more apparent in their lives than anything else is filmmaking itself. It's what they do for vast amounts of their life. It's what they think about probably for nearly all of their lives. You know, that the concept of structuring a film and making a film and how you put scenes together and the organization of films. And I think that often gets translated, whether it's subconsciously or not, into the stories they tell. But I think with uh, with Nolan, it's it's much more explicit than maybe with other filmmakers, because he plays around in his plots with the concept of time and the control of time. The compound we'll be using to share the dream creates a very clear connection between dreamers whilst actually accelerating brain function. In other words, it gives us more time on each level. Brain function in the dream will be about 20 times normal. When you enter a dream within that dream, the effect is compounded. It's three dreams, that's 10 hours I'm times sorry. 20. Uh, Mass was never my strong subject. How much time is that? It's a week, the first level down. Six months, the second level down, and the third level. It's 10 years. And it's also about the creation of storylines within the concept of Inception. The team that goes in, the Leonardo DiCaprio's crack team, are essentially a crew 
who build a narrative you know, within the mind of, of their chosen target. And one of them is the architects and they, they're almost like the production designer, the director, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's kind of the producer who organizes things. And, and Nolan has said this, that there's a kind of a shape to the, the team within the film that parallels the filmmaking crew that make a film. And I think he likes that idea of sort of echoing the process of storytelling as a filmmaker within his, his films. Nolan was always inspired by Stanley Kubrick, and that shows most in Nolan's eighth film, the sci-fi epic Interstellar. You say that Interstellar completed Nolan's unofficial trilogy with Insomnia and Inception. I guess we could call it the letter I trilogy. <laughs> what did you mean by that? I think they're, they're all films that are, to an extent, science fiction. You know, when we talk about Nolan's use of genre, it's kind of quite distinct in that he's never avert, and that's a kind of Kubrick-like quality. He loves realism. Obviously, his films are extraordinary and do extraordinary things, but the, the, the context of them is scientific rather than fictional, if you know what I mean. And with Interstellar, he wanted to do a film about galactic travel that pondered the possibilities, the realities, if you want, of that, which is a very Kubrickian response to uh, storytelling. He is delving into real science and he spent time with astrophysicists and he sort of tested this guy called Kip Thorne, who um, was kind of a big influence on the, on the film. And they, he would show him the screenplay and they would discuss the idea of traveling through wormholes and is that a bending space and all these kind of incredibly huge concepts because Nolan wanted to get it right and he wanted to portray it accurately. The planet is much closer to Gargantua than we thought. Gargantua. It's what we're calling them, the black hole. Miller's and Dr. Mann's planets both orbit it. And Miller's is, is on the horizon? Oh, it's a basketball around a hoop. Landing there takes us dangerously close and a black hole that big has a huge gravitational pull. Look, I, I could swing around that neutron star to decelerate. No, 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 it's not that. It's time. The gravity on that planet will slow our clock compared to Earth's drastically. Well, how bad? Well, every hour we spend on that planet will be seven years back on Earth. Yeah. Well, that's relativity, folks. And again, you come back to the that whole idea about time that is the kind of the central Nolan fascination. So if that fantastic concept within physics of time running at different paces and in different locations. Um, so I think you know, the, the Kubrickian thing is very much in the kind of realism and the clinical approach he takes to these high concepts. Mm. As you mentioned, all of Nolan's films explore our relationship to time, perhaps none more than his war film, Dunkirk. What did Dunkirk mean to Nolan? Well, his, his grandfather had been in the war, and I think he, he wanted to make a film that I think was different and had a different context. You know, he hadn't made a, a period piece for a while, not since The Prestige. And, you know, he'd done a lot of uh, sort of what you call very upfront kind of blockbusters, the Batman trilogy and Inception and Interstellar. I think he was fascinated by the idea of, you know, when he, the more he read about Dunkirk, the more the immediacy 
of what had gone on. These soldiers trapped on a beach and this, this extraordinary rescue mission that was launched to bring them back across the channel. The more he thought this is a fascinating story about survival and survival instincts. So I think the more he sort of conceptualized the idea of a Dunkirk film, the less it became a war film and the more it became a film about something much more primal, which was our instinct to survive. What are we willing to do under these circumstances well done, to lads. survive? Well done. Well, we did it survive. That's enough. Then, of course, this the extraordinary filmmaker arose in him and he conceptualised this idea of three different storylines and three different mediums. So one is a guy in a spitfire, one is a team on a boat going over to rescue them, and one is the, the, the soldier on the beach. So three different sort of sea, air and land, if you want. These sort of three different elements that he mixed up. And then, of course, he does this extraordinary idea of each one almost being in their own time signature, as it were, like a piece of music. There are different intersecting mm. time signatures. Music plays an enormous influence in how Nolan puts his films together. It's very much about almost a disaster film uh, structure that how do you stay alive? And the, the kind of sheer dynamic of that drives that film. Mm -hmm, very much so. Ian Nathan, thank you very much for joining us today. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Congratulations on Christopher Nolan, the iconic filmmaker and his work. It's suitably Nolan-esque and I dare say suitably Nathan-esque. <laughs> thank you. The pleasure. Ian Nathan is the author of Christopher Nolan, the iconic filmmaker and his work. Find out more at wpr.org slash beta. Well, that does it for this edition of Beta. Thanks to our guests, Rich Hall, Julie Sebaugh, and Ian Nathan. Beta is available to follow on Spotify or wherever you catch your favorite pods. And you can keep up with us during the week online at wpr.org beta or on Twitter at WPR Beta. Even for the internet, it's pretty shocking. Beta is a production of Wisconsin Public Radio and Red Meat Productions. Fantastic. Our music and technical director is Steve Gotcher. Always the best. He has no imagination. Special thanks to producer Tyler Ditter. You wanted me. Here I am. Our executive producer is Adam Friedrich. Tell your men they work for me now. This is my city. And thanks to you, our alphas. More beta comes your way next week. Until then, I'm Doug Gordon. It's a job for some very very powerful people. Gonna, gonna, gonna.